But I wanted to start tonight by um, getting you to answer some questions. Uh, there's going to be some statements come up on the screen one by one. If you agree with them, I just want you to put your hand up, okay? So the first one, I love chicken nuggets. Who loves chicken nuggets? That's not enough people. We should all love them. Okay, the second one, Glasgow is better than Edinburgh. Okay, slightly less hands. Third one, even more controversial, I love England more than my family. Just me. Okay, the fourth one, I would rather have the head of an elephant than the legs of an ostrich. Maybe give yourselves a few seconds to think about this one. I would rather have the head of an elephant than the legs of an ostrich. What do we think? Some hands are up, some hands, most people are down. Okay, what about the next one? I find being a Christian at work, university, or school easy. And our last one, I love suffering for the name of Jesus. Living for Jesus in our world today can be really hard. The letter of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are suffering and undergoing persecution. And tonight we're going to be thinking more about why we can have confidence as Christians, even in the face of suffering and persecution. So if you shut your Bibles, please open them again to 1 Peter as we look at it together. And we're going to start by looking at verses 13 to 17 under the heading, Living Confidently in the Face of Opposition. Living Confidently in the Face of Opposition. So in verse 13, Peter asks the question, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And that's a good question, isn't it? Why would people attack or persecute us if we're eager to do good? I mean, the obvious answer is no one who would want to do that. But Peter, who wrote this letter, is all too aware that being a Christian, living out the Christian life, trying to do things like love your neighbor, show kindness, and gentleness and respect, and mixing that with telling people the gospel above Jesus, well, it doesn't always end well. Peter himself was an apostle. He was sent by Jesus to preach the gospel. And in Acts chapters four and five, we read that Peter was thrown in jail not once, but twice. He was put before the courts and the priests. He was bound up, he was flogged. And all of that was for being a Christian, for someone who chooses to live out the Christian life for doing good things like healing people, telling people the good news about Jesus. So back in our passage, we're gonna look at our first point under two headings. Firstly, we'll see what opposition we're gonna face as Christians, and then how we should respond. So firstly, what opposition are we gonna face? Firstly, in verse 14 of our passage, Peter shows he expects Christians to suffer. He says, but even if you should suffer, for doing what is right. So we can expect suffering. Peter expects it to be part of the Christian life. And now this suffering might take lots of different forms, but in the context of this verse, Peter is specifically talking about people who directly oppose you for being a Christian, for someone who lives for Jesus, for being someone who speaks about Jesus. And so this is linked to verse 15, where we see our second thing, where he says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. 
So part of the opposition might look like people questioning you. It might look like people interrogating you about what you believe. People asking you, how can you trust the Bible? Or why do you follow Jesus? Or why don't you believe in evolution? It might look like your atheist friend at work hammering you about the complete reliability of carbon dating and the lack of credible evidence for the Old Testament. But it might be worse than this. Take a look at verse 15 with me. Peter says when we are quizzed and interrogated about the gospel, we need to be careful about how we answer. We need to answer in a way that's respectful and gentle. Why does he say that? Look at verse 16 with me. Because there's going to be people who want to speak maliciously about you. People who want to slander you. And why do they want to do that? Why would they want to do that to Christians? Well, verse 16 tells us it's because of our good behavior in Christ. That behavior that we just talked about, about loving people and sharing the gospel with them. So this is the third thing we face as Christians. We face people who want to speak maliciously and slanderously about us. And what do we mean when we say those words? It means these people will look for any excuse to talk about us in a horrible way. If you do something maliciously, then it means you intend to hurt someone. You are inflicting harm and pain intentionally. The words these people are saying are hurtful, they're unkind. And what about slander? Well, this is the worst kind of gossip. It isn't just talking about someone behind their back. These people are purposely saying horrible and false things. They're spreading lies about people. So when we answer those who interrogate us in a gentle and respectful way, it'll mean that those who slander, who wish to speak maliciously against us, will be ashamed because they will see how false their accusations are. But we're going to think a little bit more specifically about that later. So there's three things we face as Christians. We're going to face interrogation. We're going to face people speaking maliciously and slandering about us. And we're going to face suffering for the sake of the gospel. So how are we meant to respond? How are we meant to respond when we come against all these different oppositions? And that's our next point. How do we respond? Firstly, we respond by remembering God has blessed us. Remembering God has blessed you. Look at verse 14 with me again. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And now we might at this point ask the question, what can Peter possibly mean? How can we possibly be blessed when we are suffering? And this is a tricky one because Peter's already said we're blessed just by being part of God's people. He says that in chapter 2 and verse 9. And in chapter 1 verse 4 he says there's an inheritance yet to come for Christians. There's something in the future. So Peter in his letter has already referred to current blessings and something yet to come. So what are we to make of it here? Well, I think Peter, in this context, is talking about the current blessing of being part of God's chosen people. He's trying to say, guys, I know being a Christian is really hard. And it's easy to start thinking, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Or maybe even we start to think something more than that. We start to think, does, does God hate me for this? Is he annoyed with me? Is that why I'm suffering? but he wants us to remember that we are blessed. Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. 
We are holy. We are people who belong to God. And best yet, we are people who have received mercy. We've received undeserved mercy and grace from a holy God. And knowing we are blessed is going to help us when we suffer. Knowing that God is in control and that we are one of his people. And knowing that nothing can change that. It's going to be a real encouragement to us when life is hard. Well, how else should we respond? So secondly, revere Christ as Lord. Now you're probably thinking, what does that mean? What's it actually going to look like for me to revere Christ as Lord? Well, let's read from the second half of verse 14. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened but revere Christ as Lord. Peter is telling us not to do something, rather actively do something else. So we're not meant to fear their threats. We're not meant to be frightened. And this sentence is a quote from the book of Isaiah that we've been looking at in the mornings and from chapter eight. And in it, God's people are more afraid of the people around them, the nations around them, than they are of God. So God says to Isaiah, It's me you should fear, that I am the Holy One. I am the one that's set apart. I am the one who is really in control and powerful. It is me you should fear. So in 1 Peter, Peter is saying that we shouldn't be afraid of those people who want to persecute us. Instead, we should revere Christ, that's Jesus. We should revere Jesus as Lord. And to revere someone means we're going to think highly of them. We're going to deeply respect them. So to revere Jesus as Lord means we recognize and respect his lordship. We recognize that he is the Lord over everything, the king of everything. Peter is trying to say, don't be afraid of what people do to you. Don't be afraid of what people say about you. Don't be afraid of what people think about you. But remember and recognize that Jesus is king. He is Lord of the universe. And this is going to be a frightening thing to do when life is hard. When people laugh at what we believe, when we're excluded at work for what we believe, it's going to be hard. But imagine with me, imagine instead of being scared of those people, instead of capitulating on what we believe and joining them, we remembered Jesus. We remembered that he was king. We remember that we are part of God's people. And so we just kept persevering. We kept being kind. We kept being loving. We kept sharing the gospel. We kept loving those who hated us. I think if we did this, it would be such an amazing witness to Jesus. I think then we would really shine like stars in our workplaces, at university, and in our schools. Well, our third response to opposition is be prepared to answer. Be prepared to answer. So we already talked about this a little bit, but it's good to think, how do we respond to questioning? Just look at down at the second half of verse 15 with me. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So Peter's saying we need to be prepared to give an answer an answer that is both gentle and respectful. But let's take a step back. Let's think, how do we become prepared to give an answer? Well, I think it's by doing the things we're meant to do every single week. 
You see, every time we hear the gospel, every time we're taught at church or in small groups, every time we discuss the gospel with friends, that is preparing us to answer. Every Sunday here should prepare us to answer because all we're talking about is the hope that we have in the gospel. The hope that we have because Jesus, God's own son, died so that we could have a right relationship with him. Now you might be thinking, hold on a second, what about those really difficult questions? What about those really precise questions about science? What about when my friends ask me about fossilized Neanderthal skeletons from the crustacean period? I don't know what that is either. (laughs) And that is to say, we're not gonna know the answer to every single question. We're not gonna be able to explain everything. And this is why we answer with gentleness. This is why we answer with respect. When people ask us questions, we shouldn't want to go in their organs blazing. We don't want to shoot them down. We don't just want to win the argument. Rather, we answer with humility, with gentleness, with hope in the gospel. Remember earlier, we talked about people who wanted to say malicious and untrue and hurtful things about us. They want something to talk about. So let's not give them something to say. I'm getting married um, in April, and I can tell you that there's nothing that worries me more about my wedding than my brother's best man speech. I am trying my best between now and then not to do anything else that's stupid or embarrassing and add to the mounds of ammunition he already has on me. I think here in 1 Peter, we have a duty not to give credibility to those who wish to slander us, to speak maliciously about us. However, we also have to remember to have the humility to say that we don't know the answer, but we can find out, we can let them know, we can read up on it. If people are genuinely interested, then they will respect the fact that you don't know. And if we answer people in this way, what's the conclusion? If we answer people in a way that shows that we revere Christ as Lord, then people will know that we are Christians who love Jesus. We're gonna be showing the fact that what Jesus thinks about us is more important than what our friends say. We will show that trusting in what Jesus has done and living how he wants us to is the most important thing in our lives. Wouldn't it be really sad if we were harsh when people questioned us? Wouldn't it be really sad if we didn't bother to turn up to growth groups or listen on a Sunday morning? Wouldn't it be really sad if we never could tell people about the hope we had in Jesus. Peter is encouraging all of us to show how great Jesus is, not just by answering people's questions, but how we answer their questions. And in the next section, we're gonna think about how we can have confidence when we face opposition. We're gonna look at verses 17 to 22, point two, living confidently in Jesus' victory. Living confidently in Jesus' victory. Let's just read verses 17 and 18 again. Just look down at those with me. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Peter is telling us that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says you're much better suffering because you told someone the gospel, 
because you were kind to the lonely kid maybe at school. Or maybe you're suffering uh, because you uh, love that co-worker. It's better to do that, to suffer for that, than it is to suffer for being a gossip or a bully or doing anything evil, anything that isn't how Jesus would want us to live. And why is it better to suffer for doing good than for evil? Because it's what Jesus did. Look at verse 18. It tells us that Jesus also suffered. It also tells us that Jesus suffered once for sins. He suffered by dying for our sins. He was the righteous person who had done no wrong. He was the one who swapped with the unrighteous people, people like us who have done wrong. He took all the punishment so that we didn't have to. And he did that so he could bring us to God, so that we could have a right relationship with God, so he wouldn't be angry with us anymore. So suffering for doing good is something that we can expect because it happened to Jesus. And he is the one we follow as Christians. In his footsteps, he is the one we tread. If it happened to Jesus, then it's gonna happen to his followers. He sets the pattern for those who follow him. So we see that Jesus died in our place, but then Peter tells us that he rose again. Look at verses 19 to 22 with me. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now these verses are quite complicated, they're quite difficult um, to understand, so we're just gonna pick out um, a few key details, and if you have any questions, then ask Paul, Liam, or Andy. Um, so, so when Jesus died, it looked like death had won, hadn't it? So Jesus died, and it looked to everyone like the devil had won, the evil had won. It looked like the evil spirits had succeeded in stopping Jesus in his mission, but they were wrong. They hadn't realized that Jesus had always intended to die in our place, on our behalf, so that we could come to God. But because he was innocent, he had to rise again. Because death is only for sinful people. That was part of the curse, that sinners would die. But Jesus was innocent. Verse 19 tells us Jesus was made alive again. And that after he was made alive, he made proclamation to these imprisoned spirits these evil in prison spirits. The same spirits who would have wanted Jesus dead are these imprisoned spirits. I think the proclamation that Jesus makes to them was not done by using words. It wasn't that he went and preached a sermon to them, but it was by showing himself to be risen, by showing himself to be the risen Lord Jesus. The fact that he was killed, he was dead, but now is alive, that is the proclamation. His resurrection says, yes, you killed me, but I was innocent. And this was the plan all along. Jesus says, I am victorious over death and over evil like you who tried to stop me. But then we ask, what is the significance of Noah? 
Well, I'm sure many of us know the Noah story. Uh, there was a big flood where everything and everyone was destroyed apart from what was on the ark. The water was a symbol for death for most people, a symbol of destruction. But for Noah and his family and those on the ark, it was a sign of salvation, of being saved by God. Look at verse 20 and 21. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So Peter is saying in the same way that the water in Noah's time showed that God was saving Noah's family, when we get baptized, the water shows that we've trusted God to save us as well. You see, the water itself, the act of baptism, that does not save us, but it's a sign saying that I have trusted in God to save me. And verse 22 helpfully summarizes what has happened. So we know Jesus died, but then he was raised. Look at verse 22 with me. It says that Jesus has gone into heaven. He's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Just look at that verse. The same Jesus who was killed by normal, everyday, evil people is now at the right hand of God with everything in submission to him. And I think this is really hard for us to picture because I actually think we're really rubbish at controlling things. We try to control the toddler in crash, but let me tell you, they happily ignore you and they go head first down the slide anyway. We try and control our pets, the dog, the cat, but they still manage to poo on the carpet. I think it's really hard for us to get the magnitude of what's going on here. Everything is under Jesus' control. He even has authority over the angels themselves. And this is good news for us as Christians, as people who follow Jesus. When we suffer as Christians, when life is hard, this is good news. When school or work or university is really rubbish because people mock us for being Christian, people accuse us of doing wrong, this is good news. Jesus has beaten all of it. He has beaten death and evil and sin and the devil and everything wrong with this world. The Jesus we follow and tell our friends about isn't the loser who died, but he's the risen king. So we can live confidently knowing Jesus has the victory. We're not waiting for him to win over evil and death and suffering. He has the victory. He's now at God's right hand. He is now reigning. And that leads us on to our final point, living confidently as God's people. And we're just gonna skim through uh, these verses in chapter four just for the sake of time. And I just want us to see two big things. Firstly, how we used to live. And secondly, now how we should live if we're trusting in God to save us. So firstly, how did we used to live? Look at verse three with me. Peter says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 
before we became Christians, we get caught up in living in a way that's called, Peter calls wild living. And he gives us some examples of what that looks like. Let's just pick out two. He talks about drunkenness and idolatry. Drunkenness, where we drink too much alcohol. We become drunk, we lose control. We can't do things how we should. We make bad decisions, we do wrong things. We do evil things. Or idolatry, where we worship something other than God. When we have something more important in our lives than God. Before we trusted in God to save us, we were by default not worshiping him, but worshiping what he had created. That might, not be, uh, that might be worshiping our looks. It might be worshiping our popularity. It might be striving for a promotion at work more than you're striving to live for Jesus. It might be the pursuit of a husband or a wife before your pursuit of God. Peter says, you, you've spent enough time doing that. He says, these things are in the past. This is how we should now live. We shouldn't be living like this anymore if we're Christian. But how should we be living? Well, part B, how we should live now. How we should live now. Look at verse four onwards with me. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And let's jump to verse seven. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See, Peter is reminding us in verse 4 that not living how we used to live will be really weird. And it's going to make us stand out. He says that people will be surprised you don't join them in what they're doing. They're going to say things like, you used to live like this. I remember when you used to get drunk with us. What has happened? You are so weird for living like that. You are such a loser. You just seem to hate doing anything that's interesting, anything that you used to be happy to do. Peter says that people are going to heap abuse on you. But then he reminds us in verse 5 and then in verse 7 that one day everyone will be judged. And those people who have done evil, who have lived wildly, those people who haven't trusted in God, they're going to have to give an account before his throne. They're going to have to explain what they did and why they did it. And God says they're going to be found guilty. They're going to spend forever away from him, facing his anger. So how should we be living if we know Jesus is about to come back and judge us? Well, just a quick few notes. Firstly, we need to be sober-minded and alert. We need to be ready for this day when Jesus returns. We need to be ready and not casually living like Jesus couldn't come back tomorrow. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And I hope you've been made to feel really welcome. But can I ask you, 
if Jesus came back tomorrow, would you be ready? Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And if you haven't, then I'd love to chat to you more about this. Uh, Maybe you could come to the front where there's going to be a prayer team and ask them, or find me after the service. We need to be ready for when Jesus comes back. Verse 8 says we also need to love each other. And what is this going to look like? What is it truly going to look like to love each other? Well, I think it means putting others before ourselves. It's going to treat them like we want to be treated. It's going to be meaning we care both physically and spiritually for others. Verse 9 says we should offer hospitality to one another. This means we're being generous with what we have and using it to love others. Maybe you can't cook here, but trust me, you can still be hospitable. You can use your house for a get-together to talk about what you've learned on a Sunday morning. Maybe you could host your growth group. These are just ways that you can use what God has given you to love others. And verse 10 and 11, they tell us that we should use every gift that God has given us for him. That we should use it in a way that doesn't give us the glory and the praise, but gives God all the glory and the praise. I think the big point in these verses in chapter 4 is that we should no longer live how we used to live. Instead, we need to live these transformed and redeemed lives where God and others are put before ourselves. Where we live confidently because Jesus is the victorious King. Where we live for Him and we live for His glory and we're bold in telling people about Him. We need to be ready to suffer for the gospel. But we need to remember that Jesus is king and in him is all we need. Let's pray together.